Well, good morning, everyone. And um, as we begin our sermon today uh, and read the text that will be before us, just want to remind you of a couple of things where we are in this series. Um, And so one of those is that we are um, wrapping up, kind of concluding this series, trusting God's story that we've been in in Genesis and Exodus, and and soon we're going to start something new. And so perhaps for many of you, you're rejoicing in that. For some of you, you're like, no, keep going. Um, And uh, and I recognize both of those things. Uh, As we uh, are at this point, though, I just, I want to say thank you very much um, for enduring some of those sermons, right, and kind of sticking with week after week, trying to follow this big theme through the pages of Scripture and God's story to see what it is so that we can trust it. So thank you for choosing to worship with us today as well. I know sometimes that's not easy to do uh, for various reasons, and especially if you're new, you're kind of coming in at the end of a series we've been doing. So hang in there and stick with us. Um, this what we, where we are at is the people of God, that is Israel, the Hebrew people, have been freed from Egypt okay, as slaves. They've been led out by Moses, their leader, um, from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. They've come into the wilderness, and here they have come to Mount Sinai. And as last week we saw, as they get there, what I was suggesting to you that Scripture encourages us to see is that one of the ways we see that covenant-making ceremony at Mount Sinai is in the form of a wedding, in the form of a marriage ceremony. God says, let's get married. The people say we will. Then it comes time. They pledge their vows to one another, which are the Ten Commandments. Moses goes back up the mountain to get further instruction on what it's going to look like now for them to be the people of God in relationship with Him. How the tabernacle is going to be built, where the tabernacle is going to be placed, how they're to gather for worship and instructions on what to do and so forth. And Moses goes up on the mountain to get these instructions. He's gone for 40 days. The cloud's on the mountain. The people are like, dude, I'm not sure he survived. He may not have made it. Moses might be dead. How do we know? What's going on? What do we do? And they're tired of waiting. They're in lockdown at the bottom of the mountain. They're just tired like, uh, what do we do? we got to do something. And so they craft their own way of seeking God. Um, and one of the questions that comes to mind when we approach these verses in Exodus 32 is this. When vows are broken, what will God do? How will the Lord respond when those vows are broken? So you can follow along with me. I'm going to be reading from the ESV today. Normally I use the NIV, but today the ESV because there's, some, I think, some clarity in the passage. And I'm going to read Exodus 32, verses 1 through 20. Um, but my sermon's going to cover all the way through chapter 34. So we're going to kind of hit big themes You can go back and reread that later if you so desire. All right, so this is the word of God. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. 
And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. And relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. I'm going to stop right there. Well, there's much more we could read and much more to be said. If you were to turn to Numbers 5, you would read this same, not this story, but the same thing of grinding up the idol into powder and making somebody drink of it in the tabernacle, and it's the test for infidelity in marriage. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see what your word has for us. I pray that as we look at this relationship of you to your people, as you, the groom, and your people, the bride, that you will help us to see the weight and the glory of it. And that as we see how vows get broken, Lord, we, may we also see your beauty and your holiness and your mercy. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I was a guest at a fundraiser, a fundraising event for the uh, UDT SEAL Foundation to benefit those who had served in the Navy and the UDT or SEALs. And um, I was talking to one of the retired SEALs there with a group of people. um, And he was saying that for every one Navy SEAL that there are, there are 300 fakes. That is, people who post online, talk about being a SEAL, portray themselves as a SEAL, but in fact are not SEALs. And someone who was with me, who was was also attending this event, um, told the story about somebody he knew who claimed to be a SEAL. And he thought... The guy was making it up. 
And he began to relate the stories of what he told about his experiences and the way they treated the enemy and what they did to him. And as he told those gorish stories, the faces on about six other retired seals that were standing there just dropped. And their heads hung. And they became sad, disgusted even, as they heard the story. It was a dishonor and a disgrace to them for someone to speak that way in their name. Why why is that? Because what that person was doing was creating an image of seals that is not true to who they are. Now, I'm sure that you don't like it if somebody puts you in a light that you don't like. If they label you and place you in a box that, that, that you don't think you are, that you don't belong to. Right? If somebody puts you in a bad light, you don't appreciate that. Why? Because they are making you into something that you are not. Well, God does not like it either. He does not want his true nature and his character distorted. And the big questions that I want to ask today, just kind of following the text, are, are these two. How did the people, that is the bride of God, break their vows in order to dishonor him? And secondly, how does God, the groom, respond to that? Okay, so those are our two things we're going to look at. First, let's consider the bride breaking covenant, breaking their wedding vows. They're 40 days into this marriage, okay, into this ceremony that's been this marriage ceremony for them saying, yes, we do, we do, we'll keep our vows. It's 40 days in and the marriage is in deep trouble, deep trouble. As I read the account, uh, I went through and just kind of marked up things that I could see. And, and as, a, as a quick cursory reading, I can see at least six of the Ten Commandments that the people broke. Without going into the detail, I'll just tell you what they are. No other gods, idols, dishonoring his name, adultery, lying, and coveting the ways of Egypt rather than God. So there's at least six that they broke. And I'm not going to go into all those details of what they, how they broke those laws. Instead, what I want to do is just take a step back from that and look well, how did they do that? What was their approach? And what I want to suggest to you is that what they started to do was mixing up their own religion. Let's just create a mixture and we'll do what we think's right and we'll just mix up our own religion. And secondly, they began to minimize sin, minimize what God had said. Okay, now, now let's look at those two things. First, they're mixing religions. They do what everybody else in the world does. They're like, okay, we don't have Moses. He was there who led us. He was God's representative. I don't know. I, we'll just do the best we can. And so what does everybody else do? Well, they make idols of stuff. And so let's make a calf, and, and that'll be our representative uh, of God for us. And we'll, we'll follow this calf, and we'll, we'll, it'll be its representation of God for us. And so that's what they do. And for, in fact, to show you that they're not totally saying we do away with God, let me suggest that we look at verse 5 again. Can we put that on the screen? When Aaron saw this, okay, remember they go to Aaron and they ask him to do it, and Aaron does it. And then when Aaron saw this, their worship of the idol, he said, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And it's Lord in all caps. And when you see that in Scripture, that means that's the personal name of God, Yahweh, that we talked about earlier and Jake preached about back in Exodus 3. Right? This is their God, the one they've covenanted to in marriage. And said, okay, this is great. It'll be a feast to the Lord. In other words, they're saying, we're going to worship the Lord however we think is best. And that's what they start to do. It was a sincere effort by Aaron to get the people halfway right. 
And the people are sincere because they are giving up some of their own gold and stuff that they had in order to fashion an idol and say, yes, we we ought to be unified and do something together in worship. And so they're sincere in it. But sincerity does not make for what is right. And then verse 6, which I'm not going to put on the screen, tells us that what they do is they, they make all their sacrifices and their prayers, right? And they, and they worship before the idol. And it says, and then they, they eat and drink, meaning the sacrifices. And then they get up to play. Or if you're reading an NIV to indulge in revelry. That word can mean, it has a range of meaning like most Hebrew words. And it can mean something as simple as, hey, a fun party. Let's throw a party. In which case... They're making light of the idolatry that they just did in celebrating and say, woohoo, let's have a party now. Or it can actually refer to a ceremonial sex orgy, which was common in pagan worship. And, and many scholars think that may be what they were doing, in which case it was also wrong in breaking the sixth commandment. And so they are mixing religions, saying this is how we'll worship God. We'll create God the way we want God to be. We'll do our best. We're sincere about it. But the other thing they're doing is they're minimizing sin. Look at verse 9 with me, and let's just notice this word, and I want to explain it to you as best I can here. The Lord said to to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is stiff-necked people. Have you ever had a kink in your neck? Like, I've got a little bit of one of mine. It's hard to turn to the left as much as it is to the right, you know, and it's like a pain and everything. That's not exactly what this means, okay? That's not talking about having a sore neck that way. It's, re- it's really a reference, uh, most likely, to being stiff-necked to agricultural societies, agrar- agrarian societies, in which you have a donkey or an ox yoked and a driver plowing with them, trying to use reins to turn him, and it won't turn. He's stiff-necked. Like, no, I'm going the direction I want to go. That's the idea of the stiff-neckedness, okay, in the Bible. That's the image of it. And so... They're not listening. They won't turn from their own ways. They're doing what they want to do and what they think is good and right. And in verses 21 and 30, uh, which I'm not going to put on the screen just for sake of time because we're covering so much stuff, um, Moses says to Aaron, he says, what is this great sin that you have led the people into? Now, they they are trying to be sincere and, and, and... and minimize it, and I know they're minimizing it because in verse 21, Aaron responds, oh, please don't get angry with us. As if it's, it's no big deal, really, Moses. Come on. Don't be angry. We're doing our best. And so they're minimizing sin. Apparently, though, this sin is so treasonous that 3,000 of the ringleaders were put to death by Levites who went through the camp, sought them out, and put them to death. Why? I don't know all the answers as to why, but I, I think I can say this. Anyone who's going to come to Aaron, the brother of Moses, and say, make us other gods, is leading a rebellion of the bride against the groom. Is leading a rebellion and say, no, let's do things our own way. Leading a rebellion against the holy God who just through miraculous means delivered them from Egypt and is saying, I will make you into a new nation, my people. And it's treasonous. And it's breaking their vows. When you and I think that it's excessive and we're taken back by it, I wonder if it reveals to us how much we are prone to minimize sin. 
Like, well, that seems harsh. Right? I mean, that's often our reaction. It's my reaction when I read it. Which means that I didn't think it was that big of a deal, right? And do we do that in our lives in various ways? But what we're being shown here is that it's serious. It's like breaking wedding vows to run off with another lover. And so it's serious what they're doing, even though they're sincere in trying to do what they think is right for the Lord. At best, that's giving them the best. When I was dating my wife, Michelle, before, before we were married, when we were dating, or very early on in the first year, um, it was Valentine's Day, and I bought her a mug um, that had hearts on it. It was really cute, and it had a little teddy bear in it, and I think a lollipop sticking out of it. I thought, this is so sweet and so genuine and nice. And um, hint, um, it wasn't. It was not the kind of gift that was appreciated. Um, and she took it sincerely with a smile, but she also let me know, like, that's really not what I like. That's, that's not really showing me uh, that you care about me. Um, getting me something that was like three ninety nine from, you know, some store somewhere at a last minute without thinking much about it. And so after that experience, I learned to ask first, what is it that you like? Is there anything you like that you want? And then I'll be thinking about that to try to get a gift, right? And the reason I'm telling you that is because it's similar to what the people of Israel were doing with God. They were saying, oh, okay, well, um, I think we should do something and worship God. What should we do? How about mugs and teddy bears, right? But that's not what God wanted. In fact, it's not only not what he wanted, but it's already what he told him them not to do. He, they heard the Ten Commandments. They already heard them. They heard God speak from the mountain. Exodus 20, and I think it's verse 22. It makes it clear that they heard what God said to Moses. To make no images. There was no unclarity about it. God had already revealed what he expected and what he wanted. He said, this is how you're going to worship me. And here it is. And, as Moses, and, and then while Moses is waiting up there, the people are like, they decide not to do that. They decide to go their own way and do something else. And so you can be off target by brashly pretending to be someone you aren't, like a Navy SEAL, or you can be sincerely attempting to do what you think is good and still be off target because it's not what the Lord desires and has expected. Pretending and sincerely attempting to honor God are both stiff-necked. They're both doing what you want to do, going your way like an ox. Just keep going ahead, not turning from side to side. And so it raises questions for us, right? Are, are you stiff-necked? And I don't just mean like the kink in the neck. I mean, are you determined, set in your way, like, this is what I do. This is how I roll. This is what I think is right. Or do you have an ear to listen to the voice of God? Will you trust his story? Because he's revealed it to us in Scripture. Will you look to Scripture and see, what does the Lord say? Or do you just want to deal with teddy bears and mugs and pretentious stories? And maybe you're sincerely creating habits that you think are good, but maybe they're, and maybe they are good. Maybe they're better than other ones, but maybe they're not what God wants. Maybe you're like, oh, we could spend more family time now and, and, and because of COVID, and, and, but you've kind of 
withdrawn from the church, although you're here, so thank you. I'm not saying that's you right now, right? But, but this mentality that can happen, and like, okay, by habit, we've kind of just separated, but it's given me more family time, and that's good. Okay, but God also tells us to gather with his people and worship, right? And that's an important thing, right? And, and so habits shape and mold us. That's the definition of a habit. What are the things that maybe we need to consider that we've minimized when God says, that's really important? And we could probably have a whole sermon on that. But I've got more to go here to see how God responds. How does the groom respond to such serious sin that people die? To such serious sin that the vows are broken? That it's like treason? The first thing we see is that God gets angry. He gets, he gets angry. He really does. He gets angry, and we see it in several ways. One of the ways we see it is that Moses, who's the spokesperson for God, the representative of God, coming down the mountain carrying the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, um, sees what the people are doing, and he smashes them on the ground. What he's doing is like you taking off your wedding ring in front of your spouse and slamming it on the ground at his or her feet. Because saying, the vows are broken. You have totally disgraced us. You care not at all. What have you done? We just got married 40 days ago. That's the image here. Furthermore, we're told specifically that God gets angry in verses 9 and 10. Let's put um, verse 9 on the screen here. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen the people, right? Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. See what he's saying? He's like, it's almost kind of like Noah again. Like, okay, let's destroy the people. And, you know, we don't like to read those verses in the Bible. And when we do, a lot of times what you think is, That's that Old Testament angry God, the angry ogre in the sky. Give me some Jesus God. As if they're two different people, two different gods. They're not. It's the same God. And he's angry. And then the other thing is we tend to do is we're like, well, yeah, but it just shows that God is like so many of the other mythological gods, kind of this this emotional, unstable God that just goes off on benders of wrath and like wipes people out and like, oh man, and how do you trust that kind of God? And this is not showing an emotionally unstable God or an uncaring God. What it is showing is the one who has the right to bring justice because the covenant vows have been broken. And he's saying if there's anything good and true, if there's any such thing as justice... This is the time in which you committed yourselves to it and then forsook me. You left. You walked out with another. And justice says, no, it's time for a divorce. In fact, it's not only just a divorce because it's like he wants to wipe them out. As creator, remember, not just husband, but as creator and king, he is the one who has given them the very life they breathe, the air in their lungs. And he is the one who has the right to to take that back from them. Remember, this whole theme of what we've been saying, right? Trusting God's story and God's covenant 
is about his covenant of life and death that began in the garden with Adam and Eve and is being carried out through Genesis and Exodus all the way into the New Testament. It is a life and death matter. Thankfully, the next thing we see about God and his response is that God shows mercy. We see this in verse 14. Let's put that verse on the screen. It says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented. That is, the Lord changed course. In other words, the Lord was not stiff-necked, okay? Though he certainly could have been. He changed course. He did not bring about the destruction of his people. And he relents from that disaster, okay? But at the same time, what he does is he does allow correction. He does allow discipline, saying this is not right. And so in verse 35, God strikes them with a plague to discipline them. He says, I will allow plague to come on them to discipline them. That they might remember what they've done, right? And turn back to me as the intent of it. So they'll know. It'll instruct them in their ways and say, nope, that, that's not right. It'll teach and shape them like, like a coach shaping a team and saying, no, that's not right. We're going to do this again, and it's going to be this way. And so you remember it, you're going to run 10 laps. Or it's like a parent telling a child, no, you can't do that. You can't touch this. And because of that, I'm disciplining and correcting you to shape you for the future in the way that you should go. Because of this relationship that we have. And so God's correction, his discipline, is not to devalue the relationship, but to heighten it and to say, this is the sanctifying and purifying work of us living together. In this marriage. Isn't that true in your marriages? Husbands and wives. Learning to live with another. Learning to think, okay, how do I serve the other? What does it mean to forgive the other? How are we going to keep in relationship going forward? And yet there's corrections we make in that. There's hurt that's caused. Forgiveness that's offered. So this is part of God's work. And the people begin to change, actually. And we see that. They begin to change, giving up their ornaments. um, And... uh, and, and giving up their ornamentation as Moses tells them to in, in chapter 33, verses 5 and 6, if you want to see there, they start giving those up. And those were significant because they got them from Egypt. It was their sense of like, yes, we love Egypt and we kind of still covet its ways. And, Mo- and Moses is saying, give those up. And they lay them down. They get rid of them. And they say, okay, Lord, we're following you. And then what happens is interesting. In chapters 33 and 34, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And there's a whole lot we could go in there, but I'm not going all into that right now except for one sentence of it, which is to say this. God says, okay, Moses, because I know you by name. Because we have relationship. I will reveal my glory to you. And I will pass by you and I will proclaim myself to you. And what I want us to look at is, what does the Lord proclaim to Moses? What is it that God says that reveals the heart of the groom? Let's look at chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
That's what he proclaims as he passes by. He's proclaiming the, the same kind of thing that he proclaimed from the command about not to have any idols in Exodus 20 that the people heard from the mountain. He's saying, I am who I am. I have not changed. This is the heart of the one you make covenant with. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And yet, I'll bet that as we read that, you and I got stuck on the last sentence. Ooh, visiting iniquity to third and fourth generation. And if we went back to Exodus 20, in verse 5, where the commandment is giving, it says, to to that generation of those who hate me. And we get stuck there and think, see, there he is again, God going doing that. And what is it really saying? What it's really saying is like, sin is serious and it has ripple effects. It's never only about you. The things that you do are never only about you. They always impact other people. Sometimes directly, physically. Sometimes because of the way it changes the way you perceive things psychologically and how now you're going to interact with others. They always affect other people. And what God is saying is like, for those who hate me and ignore, right? Those who hate me, those who are ignoring me and stiff-necked and going the other way, what human experience shows is that kids repeat a whole lot of their parents' behaviors. They repeat their parents' behaviors and they also suffer the consequences of them. Think about somebody who grows up in an alcoholic house or with an abusive parent and how that carries on and you still are dealing with, as an adult, with your own kids trying to unpack that and figure out how do, what do I do with that and how do I do that differently now? Right? And that's what it's saying. He's saying that iniquity gets carried on. Your transgressions are not your own. They affect others. But the beauty in that verse that we skip over because we're so offended by the third and fourth generation, the beauty that we skip over is that God says He can break the cycle and that He will extend mercy and faithfulness and steadfastness to thousands of generations. Thousands of those who love Me. He's saying, look, yeah, this is the nature of sin. It affects people and it's bad. But the cycle can be broken. And he proclaims his character. The Lord. The Lord. I am God. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the last thing that I need us to look at before we wrap up here. Is that God provides a mediator. God provides a mediator. In Moses. Right? I mean, this is the, the role of Moses. Moses pleads for the mercy of God to these rebellious people. In verse 10, will you put 9 and 10 on the screen again, that last, those last verses we had up there? I think it's in... Uh, yeah, and notice the end of this. Notice what it says here. That I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. What God is saying is, okay, Moses, let's start over. You're the new guy. You're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not changing my promise. It's just like... Um, you know, we're going to continue on with you. And what does Moses do? Was he tempted? Was he like, oh yeah, yeah, let's start over with me. That's a great idea. I don't know. We're not told if he was tempted to do that. What we're told is what Moses does. And what Moses does is not that. What Moses does is he goes and he pleads before God. And he says, he mediates on behalf of the people. And he says, why should Egypt get the last laugh if you bring your people out and then destroy them in the desert? God, why? 
please be faithful and keep your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remembering your covenant. And God does. Moses mediates and says, God, don't you remember? And God says, of course I remember. And God relents. Critical connection point. Moses, well, before I state something, let me just ask this. What they did was they made an image of God. Right? They made an image. The second commandment, don't make any images. They make an image. Does that language, the image of God, sound familiar to you from our study? If we were to turn all the way back, say, to Genesis, the end of chapter 1, would that language, the image of God, sound familiar to you? When God makes man in his own image, image in his own likeness he makes them one of the things that is happening right here is that people want an image of God and what God is saying is you have it already I made it in you but you have distorted it but what Moses is doing faithfully here as a mediator is actually acting in the image of God by reflecting the heart of God who is faithful and steadfast and he's saying no God remember your covenant with your people. And what Moses is doing is saying, look, God, if it would be helpful for you to turn away your wrath from your people, then take it out on me. Blot me out of your book, but spare your people. And I need to show you this. This is in verse 30 of, verse 30 and 32. Let's put those on the screen. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That's the language of cover. Perhaps I can cover your sin. And so he's going to talk to God about it and then 32 says, but now if you will forgive their sin, he's talking to God, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is saying, look, can't we find a way to cover the sin of your people? And if not, can there be a substitute that would take the place of the sin of your people and being punished for it. Is it clicking? Are you going, oh, wait. The Old Testament really is about Jesus? Yes, it is. It really is. Because what God promised in the garden is a Messiah from Eve who would crush the evil one And now we are being shown, the people are being shown that this Messiah will be a mediator who will show mercy of God in the very heart of God to his people and be a substitute to take the punishment in their place. And wouldn't it be great if that mediator were made in the image of God? Enter Jesus, born of human flesh, but also the divine Son of God. And what does Scripture tell us about him? Let's look. Colossians 1.15, Paul says of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If you've received Christ as your substitute, your satisfaction of divine justice and the promise of mercy of God, then you have been restored into your great calling to reflect the image of God 
to other people, which Romans 8.29, Paul confirms to us when he says that God is conforming you more and more into the image of His Son. Because we're in relationship with God and He hasn't left us. He vowed that He won't. And He made good on that in Jesus. His image, His divine Son, who's your mediator and your substitute, who makes sure that your relationship, when you're stiff-necked, is not all gone, but that the heart of God pursues you and comes to you and says, I pledged myself to be your groom and I will win you back to me. And so that's where we leave today with these takeaways. Put these on the screen. Will you trust the substitute offered in Christ who is the very image of God, the Son of God? That's your first takeaway question. Will you do that? Maybe you've never done it and today's the day you need to do it. Like, yeah. I've been pretending and I've been trying to be sincere but making my own way and pretty stiff-necked. I need to trust God. Do that today. Pray. It's not a magic prayer. It's a simple prayer. It's an earnest prayer saying, God, I can't do it on my own. God, I've been stiff-necked. I need you. I need your substitute. I need Jesus to save me from my sin and to shape me more into your image. Please do that in me. The second question, takeaway, is this. How will you reflect the image of God in your relationships with others? And maybe to flesh that out a little bit would be, ask yourselves those two other subpoints there. To whom do you need to be patient when they're being stiff-necked, as God has been patient with you? And to whom do you need to show mercy and forgive this week? When you've broken vows, the heart of God hurts, as we would say, but is most definitely for his people. Look into the eyes of the one who pledged himself, who stretched his arms to hang on a cross and said, you are my people. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be image bearers of you because in fact we are. Every single human being is an image bearer. And yet because of the chaos and the brokenness and the sin that has entered the world, it is distorted in each of us in ways. And so Lord, rather than us seeking our own ways, shape us and mold us, make us into who you want us to be and help us never to forget your promise, your covenant, that you swore an oath that you are gracious and compassionate, abounding in love, steadfast, faithful. Turn our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.